Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Avner Cohen, who is a senior fellow at the Washington office of the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies, the Monterey Institute of International Studies. He is the author of Israel and the Bomb, and his new book is The Worst Kept Secret, Israel's Bargain with the Bomb. Avner, welcome to Berkeley. Thank you so much. Where were you born and raised? Well, in Israel itself. I uh, was born in the early 50s in the uh, Tel Aviv area. I uh, went to high school in Tel Aviv. I served in the Israeli army from 69 to 72. And looking back, how do you think your parents shaped your thinking about the world? My parents? Yes. Well, in interesting way, my mother is a Holocaust survivor. And uh, it never... I always had it in me. And, you know, even though Holocaust was something that was, in the early years, was not that much discussed at home, because of the absence and because of the silence, it was discussed due to that. So it was present without being discussed. And then it has been discussed. And the questions of, later on, the nuclear, uh, my own father, who was a journalist, cover Arab-Israeli affairs. I knew that nuclear matters did matter to him very much. In fact, I recall vividly the time that uh, we heard on the radio the first statement by Prime Minister Ben-Gurion in uh, December 1960 about the Dimona thing and the impact that it had on my father and subsequently the impact that it had on me as a child 10 years old. And Dimona, we should explain to our audience, was the facility, and at that time Israel was saying that it was exploring the peaceful uses correct. of uh, correct. nuclear Dimona technology. Correct, Dimona is the town, which is about 25 uh, miles or so east of Beersheba, at the Negev, not far from the phosphates um, uh, area. And the uh, nuclear facility that was built, was excavated, is just uh, a, few, a few miles from, from that town. And where were you educated? Well, my BA was at Tel Aviv University shortly after, after the 73 war. I finished in 75. My master was in Canada, Toronto, York University in philosophy, and my PhD from the University of Chicago, I finished in 1981. And uh, when one reads your book, which we'll talk about in a minute, there, there, there's a strong interest in uh, political philosophy, what makes a democracy work uh, as a kind of a second story uh, as you talk about nuclear weapons. So, so political philosophy was something you, was a strong interest. Well, of course, but also you have to consider the time. Uh, my own PhD was about skepticism, and uh, I recall very vividly uh, my first year of teaching at Washington University, 1982, which was the anti-nuclear movement, the beginning that, that cycle of the anti-nuclear 
consciousness. And my good friend and colleague, Stephen Lee, he called me from upstate New York. He was in his second or third year teaching at uh, William and Hubbard uh, Colleges in upstate New York. Um, and he called me and said, Abner, what about, would you be interested to do with me some volume on the philosophical aspects of the nuclear issue? The Terence, the moral aspect of that, and almost without hesitation at all, I told him, yes, the rest is history. So it was very much, I was, I see myself very much as one of the children of the anti-nuclear movement of the early 80s. And in many ways, that shaped my philosophical, political consciousness on this issue, because that led me to, to the whole thing. Instinctively, I was there. Uh, I think there was something in me that was intrigued by the very idea of human-made apocalypse, and it caught me, the need, the imperative to try to, to make it that it will never happen. Yeah, it would be of interest, before we actually uh, talk about your book and, and Israel's strategy and doctrine with regard to nuclear weapons, to explore with you what, what are the skills involved in this kind of research that you're doing on a weapons program, because uh, as we'll talk about in a minute, this is a taboo subject yes. in Israel. Yes. So when, when you were doing the research for the, the first book on the bomb and now this book, uh, uh, what, uh, uh, what, what kind of skills, what, what did you have to learn well, how to do that philosophy didn't teach you? It's interesting because I came from philosophy, but my view about philosophy and was was part of the so-called the Rortian Tulminian view of philosophy. That is to say, I saw philosophy as a way to create interesting conversation between disciplines, between areas of interest, and the idea was to bridge conversation. And I think my curiosity about history, about human beings, so I started with that as skills, the ability to makes people to tell me story. Uh, for Israel and the Bomb, I interview almost 200 people because there was so limited material in documents. I did look and I did search in various kind of archives in the United States, in Norway, in France, and of course in Israel itself, including private archives. But I spent also a great deal in oral conversation with all sorts of people, Israelis, French, American, Norwegians, and others. So the skills is perhaps curiosity about human being, about narrative of life, about history of science, about political history, and of course, in the specific case of Israel, Israeli history. And since I grew up in neighborhood that many of the elite of the Israeli army, the first generation's generals of the Israeli army lived, I knew, I was familiar with names, with stories, with, and that's what I brought into this, uh, this interest. What, what I'm curious, was there uh, a sense from the people you were talking to, of they, they really were glad to open up in a way, to well, tell stories, since, since in fact part well, of your story is that there because, isn't a conversation. Because the nuclear issue, I believe, it's the most intimate Israeli secret. 
But it's a secret that so many people were involved and so many people felt that they have contributed something. So there is something very heroic about it because it is this intersection between Shoah, Holocaust, and Kuma survival or resurrection, national resurrections. For the people, even if their role was limited, they, they, it was something that shaped their life in terms of contribution to the nation, to the country. So when I started, and of course it was a secret, it was something that has not been talked, that was treated as a national taboo. So reaching people in their 70s, some in their early and mid-80s even, and starting in a way that connect human lives, their own personal narratives, with those big national events. And I think perhaps I have a little sensitivity, a little, a little care and attention to those kind of, of aspects of human stories. Some people I met hours, tens of hours even in some cases, and I was over time from stiffness was able slowly to, to remove those peels of layers of secrecy. And, you know, I did promise that certain elements of the stories will be, remain with me. It's interesting that, for example, in this book, there is one story of a man, a man who was in many ways in charge on one side of the nuclear program of the weaponization. And he wanted me to know certain things even though he was inhibited how much he wanted to tell me. So when he was alive, he allowed me to use a very limited part of the story. He passed away and I took the liberty because his story was so fascinating to tell that the same very story, to go back to the notes from the early 90s. I met him in 92, 93, 94. And that time, this time, to tell the entire story. We'll, we'll get into that in a moment. Now, let, let's, you, you, your subtitle is Israel's Bargain with the Bomb. And let's talk about that now and, and pick up some of these themes. So Israel's, what is Anamut? Amimut. 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 Okay, sorry. <laughs> uh, explain what that is. Well, for me, Amimut which literally is the translation of opacity, is the very unique style under which Israel introduced, but didn't introduce, its possession of nuclear weapons. It's the layers under which Israel, the very culture in the broad sense, under which Israelis speak but do not speak about their national bomb. That is to say, Israel has never acknowledged openly in any way to this very day to possess the bomb. And yet the entire world knows it. That's why I call it the worst kept secret. So it's still a secret, but it's worst kept because Israel wants the world to know that it has the bomb. And yet Israel cannot say it openly. Israel is prohibited. In fact, the whole issue of the bomb is a taboo-like, and yet Virtually all Israeli knows about it. So Amimut, the word for opacity in the narrow sense, the kind of policy that the Israeli government 
handles the nuclear issue in the broad sense, the entire culture, national culture, the kind of unique discourse, this is, for me, the essence of Israel's bargain with the bomb, very different from all the other seven or eight nuclear weapon states that we have today in the world. And uh, it's Israel's unique contribution to the nuclear age. So I decided to use the Hebrew word amimut in the book because I'm referring to something which is much larger than just the translation of the word opacity in English. And uh, it's interesting because your book really uh, demonstrates how this goes uh, back to the origins of the, the, the movement toward having a bomb. And so the decision is Ben-Gurion's, and it was, he was dealing with Israel's uh, strategic and emotional situation, namely the Holocaust, and now the new state of Israel, surrounded by enemies who would not uh, recognize Israel's existence, and uh, focused, as you just said, on the notion that from Shoah we could go, Israel could go to revival. So, so the bomb was a decision by Ben-Gurion, which he alone really made. Very much so. The bomb was in many ways response to his own anxieties about the Holocaust. You know, during the Holocaust, Ben-Gurion was the uh, director general, the, the man at the helm of the Zionist movement in Palestine. Essentially, Israel's, before it became Israel's, the prime minister, the executive director of the uh, Jewish Yeshuv. Uh, that Yeshuv, that organized form of um, semi-political autonomous uh, community, Jewish community in Palestine, was totally helpless to, to save the Jews. And the fear that could be another Holocaust, the memory not only of the Jewish Holocaust, but also the Armenian Holocaust that Ben-Gurion witnessed in, during World War I. I think for him, he wanted to establish a way to deter realizing that Israel will not be able to deal cycle after cycle after cycle with Arab violence, viewing the conflict that uh, came into the shape of political conflict, not just communal conflict, after the establishment of Israel. Ben-Gurion wanted to achieve stable long-term deterrence that perhaps can be used to insulate to seduce, to lead the Arab to accept Israel, to recognize Israel. But I think it's very important to realize that initially it was the fear, the fear that perhaps Israel conventionally, the IDF, will not be able to provide Israel for the long term that kind of security. That fear was not shared by everybody. In fact, one can say almost for certainty that no any other leader except Ben-Gurion, that is to say, if you think about the people around him at the time, Moshe Sharet, who was his foreign minister, Golda Meir, the later on minister, later on prime minister, she ultimately made the deal with President Nixon. 
Levi Eshkol, the immediate uh, successor of Ben-Gurion, none of them, if they would be initially the head of the small state of Israel, would go nuclear. There was no pressure from the military. Even the small military, they did not think about it. So it was very much Ben-Gurion himself alone with the help of his young aide, at that time, a man in his late 20s, early 30s, Shimon Peres, who today is the president of Israel, and a young scientist uh, named Ernst David Bergman, who was in fact not even a physicist, he was not engineer, he was organic chemist, but he was the one who was planted in the mind of Ben-Gurion, we can do it. In fact, his ideas were very much, many ways, wrong scientifically, but the sense of confidence, we can do it, trust me, was part of the Ben-Gurion ethos. Now you make the point in uh, your book that it's, it's a bargain, Israel makes a bargain with the bomb, but the U.S. is implicated in that bargain. Very much and, so. And the, the, in, in terms of the uh, initial period that you just described, uh, the, the world uh, the world was watching the United States move toward the non-proliferation treaty. So in a way for Israel, it was a, re- a race to, if it was going to go in this direction to, uh, to uh, do it in such a way by not telling the United States, by hiding it from the United States, but then later, and we'll talk about that in a second, an agreement with Nixon, to not admit that it had uh, was moving in this direction or, or had weapons. So, so what happens in a meeting with Nixon and Golda Meir, which consolidates a bargain uh, whereby the U.S. agrees to Amamut? Yeah. Well, in many ways, it was three pairs of Israeli and American leaders who dealt with it. If you take Eisenhower, even four. So it's Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, and ultimately the end of the story with President Nixon. Israeli leaders, Ben-Gurion initially, the person who founded the project, who initiated the project, but nevertheless, the one who was afraid to call it by name the one who always initially said it was peaceful, the one who never take the full acknowledgement to acknowledge this is about weapons, especially in his meeting with President Kennedy. Then Eshkol and Johnson, where some kind of compromise is gradually being made. Uh, the Israelis do not say, the Americans increasingly understand that they cannot stop it, They cannot stop it, but they can shape it in such a way that Israel would be continued to do what she does, but under layers of secrecy, under layers that ultimately would prevent Israel to go public. And those elements, the fact that Israel does certain things in the privacy of its R&D, but at the same time, Israel does not want to compromise the United States, does not want to compromise its own interest and to lead Arabs to go into weapons program of their own. So Israel has inhibitions. Some of it were domestic. Some of it was strategic. Some of it were in deference to the United States' interest, global interest. And part of it was 
also in keeping a certain pledges that were given to the United States. The result is that you do what you do secretly. Ultimately, in 69, under the Nixon administration, the United States fully come to terms with that. And yet the agreement is we're going to keep it in a quiet fashion. That is to say, in the deal that it's being made ultimately between the two leaders, Golda Meir and Richard Nixon, is yes, Israel has the bomb, but the bomb is under wraps, not being declared, not being tested, not being visible in the basement. So from the point of view of the non-proliferation treaty and the young regime that is being emerged and being evolved is you don't defy, you don't confront that regime. Technically, under the regime is test is a mark of crossing the threshold. Israel does not do anything public, including test. And for a while, in fact, to this very day, the agreement that was made at that time, which apparently was made orally, some letter were exchanged apparently after that, but that the whole agreement to this day has remained secret between the two states. It's still, even though I found great deal of indication, historical archives that led to the emergence of that deal, it has never been acknowledged neither by the United States nor by the Israeli government. So it is still a secret. Even President Obama, at the end of the nuclear summit this year, or 2010, in, in, in the summer of 2010, he make all sorts of linguistic acrobatics just not to acknowledge openly that indeed Israel has nuclear weapons, even though it was very obvious from his language that, of course, that's the case. Now, now interestingly, they're, they're, on the one hand, uh, Israel, Israel's solution to this problem uh, has meant that it hasn't used nuclear weapons as a, as a political weapon. It hasn't brandished them. It hasn't threatened them. It hasn't done what most powers do once they get it as a way to move up in the, the international uh, hierarchy. Although, of course, as well, you say, it's, people It's people a very know. complex yeah. and subtle and nuanced game. Yeah. You don't do any visible, any active move with a bomb verbally or even otherwise in a visible fashion. You don't go on alert. Well. Or do you? <laughs> well, that's very interesting. In the 1973, apparently the nuclear issue has not been verbally discussed, even when Kissinger met Simchadin, it's the ambassador, and even when there were direct telephone conversations with, with Israel. However... The United States, that is to say the U.S. intelligence community, uh, via satellites, via high-altitude aircraft, the SR-71, they did pick up dispositions on the ground hmm. that apparently pointed out that Israel was moving things out of caves or out of underground shelters and doing certain things in a manner that it was clear the Israelis wanted them to be intercepted and to be understood by the United States. Years later, I understood 
and again, I may be wrong, but that's my historical understanding, that Israel did not have at that time fully operational capability in terms of missiles. And yet Israel did certain dispositions on the ground in order to convey a message. So we talk about nuance is you cannot speak verbally. You cannot have the ambassador convey a message, but you can do certain things on the ground that leave a strong signature that is strong enough to convey a message. The result was Henry Kissinger within four days started to mobilize and against the opposition of Secretary of Defense Schlesinger, the U.S. airlift to Israel started to move on the 14th, and I think by the 15th of October, the first C-5 Galaxy huge American aircraft started to land at Tel Aviv airport, providing, and this was psychologically and politically, not so much truly logistically, but nevertheless, psychologically and politically, it makes a difference. And the fact, the most important was that Israel by those days, by the second week of the 73 war, started to get new A4 Skyhawks and a new Phantom that play a very major role. In other words, from American perspective, Israel no longer, in terms of its attrition, in terms of its losses, feel being crossed to the corner and perhaps has to demonstrate nuclear capability. So nuclear weapons do play in a tacit way, but a concrete way at the same time, a real role politically and even in a tangible way by providing Israel immediate airlift that was very, very needed, especially the aircraft. Less so the ammunitions and tanks and so forth, but especially the aircrafts. The, the, the uh, thrust of your book is that uh, a doctrine that made sense both in its initiation and in, in the early phases of Israel's existence uh, may no longer make sense uh, as Israel confronts the, the present and the future. And you, you take off a number of items. One is the, the cost of this taboo uh, to uh, the Israeli democracy. Talk briefly about that, because what you're suggesting is, since the subject is taboo, you don't get things like an arms control movement. You, get, you don't get open discussion about the, uh, the national security decision-making process. Uh, there's no truth and accountability. And there, there's no written history of all of this except what people like you are doing. Exactly. Well, I think that... Uh it makes sense as a deal, as a bargain, in the early days. It makes political sense. From the beginning, I think it was flawed. But nevertheless, I think the benefits outweighed the minuses, the democratic and the other minuses. Over time, I think the world has learned to live with nuclear Israel. I think it become less and less necessary. Yes, there are certain sensitivity vis-a-vis -vis the Arab world, vis-a-vis -vis the regime. But I think that Israel is paying a certain price, Israel and the world, in terms of norms. So I think that uh, one of the things that I'm doing in this book, and I saw it very much as my personal civic duty as an Israeli citizen, as somebody who cares about Israel, and I'm 
even though I live in the United States, I'm still Israeli citizen as well. Uh, Israel is paying a democratic price. And it's not just a phrase that talking about democratic price. It's a real price. It's a price that in terms of understanding Israeli historical narrative, understanding processes of war and peace in the Middle East, the role of nuclear weapons, what led Sadat to the peace initiative, uh, the fact that a huge issue, the fact that the nation has found itself in need to develop nuclear weapons, and yet to these very days, two generations after, half a century after the initial decision was made by Ben-Gurion, the issue is still in the Israeli political and cultural milieu. It's still a black box. To me, it's unacceptable. This is not a way that liberal democracy deal with vital issues. The issue has to find a way to sit openly on the table, at least the basic acknowledgement. You know, every nuclear democracy that dealt with this issue keeps a great deal of secrets on this issue. It has to do with the security. It has to do with the issue of safety. That's obvious. That cannot be different in the Israeli case. Even in the case of the United States and the UK, there are a great deal of issues which are classified, and that's in the nature of that beast. But the basic acknowledgement, the fact that the country finds itself in the need to develop those weapons, and therefore you need to develop certain mechanism of, as you said, accountability and oversight, you need to prevent a group thinking. You need to prevent a situation that those issues are being discussed, decided, thought by tiny coterie. You need to prevent a situation that someone like myself, who is a scholar, who started to understand or trying to, to, to study this issue, had to deal with investigation, with interrogation, even with a threat of jail at one time. Uh, a threat of trial. So what you're saying is that uh, you're 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 disturbed, you're uh, uh, concerned is a better word by the fact that Israel, a vibrant democracy, is not able to discuss these issues openly. Well, that those areas of questions with history with implications on the present and the future that has impact on the processes of peace and war in the Middle East, that in many ways galvanized Israeli society and gave it the sense of confidence, national confidence that it has today, the issue cannot be discussed, cannot be even mentioned, cannot be even acknowledged openly. There is something very morally awkward, problematic about that. And I think that the need, that the political need that existed a uh, long, long time ago that led to this special bargain, to the special arrangement, to the special exception deal that uh, Golda Meir and Nixon did in 1969, uh, that issue has become anachronistic, has become passé, has become a stain on Israeli democracy and time for Israel to end the United States because it's very much uh, uh, symbiotic action by the two countries to think and to deal, to address 
this issue in a new way. I don't necessarily have with me, I have ideas towards the directions, how should we go? I don't have a full formula or a blueprint how exactly you do it. But I think the time at least, and the, I see very much the job of this book is a call to rethink, reopen these questions for both the United States and Israel. And I believe that the danger that people see by opening things are not as big. And I see the benefits, domestic, international, normative, are important, even in the context of, of Iran today. Uh, so what is a problem for all democracies, namely the problem of nuclear weapons, is, is something that Israel uh, uh, feels very deeply because well, of I would say I would say that the very basic tension between nuclear weapons and democracy, a, pre- a tension that exists anywhere where nuclear weapons were developed, essentially nuclear weapons, you can say that in their very spirit, they are incompatible with both the substantial and the procedural aspect of democracy. Uh, Because we're talking about weapons of mass destructions with magnitude of destructions, which is unparalleled, they're against the very idea of uh, the dignity of life, all those values of the Enlightenment which are in the base of democracy. Also because of the secrecy, the kind of secrecy they created, the kind of secrecy the nuclear weapon necessitated, there are created areas, black holes, uh, complexes, states within states, which are built upon secrecy. And this against uh, an assault against the spirit of democracy. So both on substance, on procedure, there is a certain basic tension, basic incompatibility between nuclear weapons and democracy. The Israeli case, the amimut, the opacity, the fact that you cannot even acknowledge, the fact that by acknowledging it's being deleted, just the very effort to acknowledge it by state institutions, specifically the censorship, created that tension the most extreme. So in many ways, for me, Israel presents a most extreme case of this tension, of this incompatibility between the values and the uh, spirit of democracy as we know it and nuclear weapons. It's a very extreme case of that tension. You also say that there are international costs to continuing this policy. And uh, the first case uh, that comes to mind is the case of India. You compare Israel uh, to India and you point out that the recent U.S.-India agreement suggests that the United States is evolving in its sort of notion of what the non-proliferation treaty means with regard to a power that is openly recognized as having nuclear weapons. Uh, talk a little about that because you, you're you suggesting uh, very clearly that Israel, by keeping its uh, current doctrine, is unable to the benefits that come with open recognition that they have weapons and they're under control. 
Well, there are a number of elements in this complexity of, of, of the issue. One thing is the fact that under opacity, because Israelis cannot acknowledge having nuclear weapons, the possession of nuclear weapons, Israel cannot be engaged, cannot be involved, either in a global or in a regional process of arms control that, that refers to nuclear weapons as such. Uh, in the past, the Israelis felt very comfortable to reject, to dismiss that kind of, they didn't want to be part of that kind of, of uh, negotiation and they or that have kind an of interest. discourse. They have an interest in nuclear weapons not being introduced into the region. That's yeah. right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, but they refused to speak about the nuclear issue. Whenever, for example, the Egyptians wanted to bring the issue, to discuss the issue, ultimately to promote the idea of disarmament and nuclear weapon-free zone, Israel refused to talk about it. Well, I think time has come to normalize Israeli nuclear weapons, both in the regional context, in the global context. When you talk about the global context, I'm talking about even the vision of world without nuclear weapons. Right now, Israel cannot be even a stakeholder because it cannot even acknowledge the fact that it has nuclear weapons. So there is something very awkward about it. Israel is exception is outside that kind of discourse, either in the regional or in the global way. I know Israelis like to keep it that way. They feel very comfortable to have that kind of exception. I don't think it's right. I don't think it's good for the region ultimately. And I think ultimately one has to acknowledge reality. The region and the Globally, we have to acknowledge reality. The fact that Israel is a nuclear weapon state, it doesn't mean that Israel would be the first to disarm. That will not happen. But, but at least Israel has to be acknowledged for what she is. You cannot continue with make-believe as if it's something we don't talk about. It. That kind of taboo, that kind of political taboo in the regional and in the global context, ultimately, it's not good for Israel, it's not good for the region, it's not good globally. So time has come to find a more mature, a more open way that would put it on the table, this and, issue, and Israel the big is, elephant. Israel, is, from its present stance, is really not able to uh, participate in the dialogue about what non-proliferation should be in a world which uh, terrorism has become such a paramount uh, problem. Well, Israel shy away from any discussion of nuclear issue because Israel does not want to in any way to acknowledge what she has. Israel is very defensive about it. I think that kind of defensive almost sounds like as if it adds an aura of sinfulness as if something is not kosher. I think what Israel did essentially, Israel did not find itself in position to sign the NPT. Israel could not have joined the non-proliferation treaty as a nuclear weapon state. To do that, it had to explode uh, uh, a nuclear explosive before January 1st, 1967. This did not happen. So Israel, there is no way for Israel to join the NPT. Nevertheless, I think the interest of the world is to engage Israel and to have Israel as a stakeholder, as a nuclear weapon state, part of that kind of conversation. Just as India has to be part of that kind of conversation. I am aware that the Indians themselves 
would like to create a forum outside the non-proliferation treaty that would allow all eight or even nine, certainly eight, North Korea is a complex and different case, but at least to be involved in that kind of forum. Israel is ambivalent, is fearful even to ask or to try to gain legitimacy to what she did. And what she did, there was no any violation of international law. Israel did not violate international law by its pursuit to nuclear weapons in the 60s, in the 50s, before there was even a non-proliferation treaty. And yet Israel behaved as if there is something non-kosher <laughs> or sinful about it. So my own view and part of this book is to try to remove these taboo-like inhibitions. I believe much of it is the burden of history, the burden of being being under the wraps of your own habits. I think it's, and I think the United States should play a very useful role, almost like walking with a baby or always walking with somebody young who needs some protection to feel it's okay to talk about it. So the United States has a job because it was from the very beginning, from 69, a party to this deal, to this bargain of opacity, to take Israel outside opacity, providing a certain guarantees to Israeli security, and yet making Israel increasingly over time a partner to that global discussions. One can think about all sorts of political avenues that would happen to do so. I am aware that at the present time, it's not easy, practically speaking, politically speaking, to find the exact avenue to do so. When you don't have uh, a real movement towards peace on the Israeli-Palestinian issue, and of course the larger cycle, the Israeli and the rest of the Arab world, it's, it's difficult to find a way that would allow to legitimize, or at least to to put Israeli nuclear weapons at the same level of, of semi-legitimacy that other nuclear weapons of other states do have. I'm using the word semi-legitimacy because for the long run, none of them is legitimate. Under the NPT, including, I'm talking, referring to the, to the declared nuclear weapon states, all of them under Article uh, 6 are committed in the long run to nuclear disarmament. So Israel would not have any exception of that. That's the vision of world without nuclear weapons. Even though there is no timetable, there is no exact uh, uh, limits, but nevertheless, they're all part of that kind of uh, status. Let's talk now about Iran. In, in what yeah. way does Israel's doctrine constrain it as it deals with the Iranian problem? And the Iranian problem seems to be that uh, Iran is doing what Israel is doing, arguing that it's uh, only developing uh, 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 nuclear technology for peaceful uses, but in fact they're not. Well, they're not exactly doing what Israel is doing, but in some way they're mimicking the Israeli opacity style. One immediate difference is the fact that uh, Iran is a signatory of the NPT. We believe Iran does violate its obligation under the NPT. Israel never signed the NPT. So Iran is formally 
committed to be only peaceful. Israel formally is not committed to, to anything because it does not sign the NPT. Um, nevertheless, what it seems is that the Iranians mimicking Israel in the sense that they are blurring the distinction between possession and non-possession. Uh, they're trying to extract uh, benefits of nuclear deterrence even before they have the bomb by being very close, by keeping close proximity to the bomb. And in doing so, they undermine the very regime, the very treaty, the very, the very business, the very enterprise of non-proliferation. So, so, so by, by mimicking the Israeli style, by creating their own version of opacity, uh, they're undermining the very international order that we have on, on these matters. Would, if, if Iran openly uh, embraced nuclear weapons, would the region be able to sustain deterrence? Is Waltz right that we needn't worry about uh, the Iranian regime or a regime like the Iranian regime? I don't regime? think so. I think if Iran openly... Uh, by the way, for Iran openly to to uh, adopt or to uh, welcome possession of, of nuclear weapons, that would be leaving the NPT, departure from the NPT. I think it would create uh, waves of anxiety in the region, uh, realignment, uh, could not automatically create interest in some countries to go nuclear themselves uh, would require the United States to uh, probably extend uh, a certain security umbrella to other countries. Uh, uh, and it would, it would be a major game changer if Iran would, would, would take that, uh, that directions. I can see even a situation of uh, creating of... Uh, uh, military lines, uh, that Israel may even be part of that, to contain perhaps even to reverse that kind of Iranian situation. So no, I do not buy the Waltzian view that that can create a uh, stable uh, deterrence, a peaceful deterrence uh, in, in, in the region. I don't think so. You, you seem to be arguing that Israel's uh, doctrine of opacity uh, limits its ability to work with others in containing a problem like the Iranian problem. Is that a fair assessment, or are we getting this uh, allied cooperation against Iran, but uh, under the table, so to speak? Well, the Israelis believe, and they may have a point, that by keeping their own profile low, they make it more difficult for Iran to go nuclear openly. If they will go nuclear openly first, it will be easier for Iran to follow them without penalizing by the world. And they may have a case. So in many ways, Iran complicates my own argument. It doesn't make it simpler. Nevertheless, uh, I, I myself believe that... Uh, that Israeli military action against Iran could be devastating, 
could create, uh, could lead to a war that could take weeks, months, perhaps even longer than that, uh, with all sorts of parties involved, including Hezbollah, Hamas, possibly even Syria. So I'm, I'm, I'm very cautious on the, on the Iranian issue. Uh, if Iran would come closer through the threshold, I can see a situation that in order to prevent Israeli attack, uh, the world would be willing to accept openly uh, Israel with nuclear deterrence, with open nuclear deterrence vis-a-vis Iran. But to do that, Iran would have to, to, to be more advanced and more defying than Iran of today. So I do agree that my argument has a problem on the questions of Iran. And I would say that perhaps for the time of dealing right now with Iran, despite my strong argument in number of areas, domestic and international, because of the complexity, the sensitivity, the subtlety of the Iranian issue, I would put my, my urge on, on this issue to move into post-opacity, outside opacity, to keep it as is for the time being. What, what in today's situation in Israel moves us toward a greater openness about this set of problems and about the doctrine uh, without endangering Israel's security. What I'm looking for is a handle, because following on your argument, it would seem to be, on one hand, good for Israel if there were a greater discussion of the Iranian situation in the context of an opening up of all of the issues you've raised. On the other hand, maybe it's not such a good idea at this time. What are your thoughts? Well, there are there are elements both pro and con on this, this issue. I think one issue which is not, which is missing from the picture is once you realize that Israel itself today is a country with nuclear deterrent capability, with nuclear weapons, Israel has been responsible. The view that Iran can pose an existential threat to Israel, a view which is being recently advanced by Prime Minister Netanyahu, and some people in his cabinet, not all, but some. Uh, that view is highly problematic once you realize that Israel today is much more advanced and much stronger than Iran today. Uh, if Israel is much stronger than Iran, Israel already has nuclear weapons for years, and many, and perhaps in tried form, on submarines, missiles, and perhaps can be delivered by aircraft. Iran does not have any of that. How Iran could pose an existential threat on Israel that would lead Israel no choice but to take military action? I do think that Iran questioned the Israeli monopoly. I can see strategic reasons why Israel is concerned about that, but that is quite a different story than an existential threat. And I think that because of opacity, because Israeli nuclear weapons are not part of the equations in an open fashion, there is a great deal of conceptual and political confusions about the meaning of these Iranian threats. 
I think that the rhetorics of Iran as an existential threat to Israel is not a correct one, is a mistake one. It's create politics of scare, which is which doesn't fit, which which is not right. Uh, I think that Iran does have a threat, but it's a different type of threat. It's a threat to Israel's monopoly. It's a threat to Israeli strategic interest and so forth. But there is different way to approach one and the other. If it's not existential threat, you are not compelled to go into a war which could be a terrible war. So, so in a way, in your view, democracy, a gradually opening up of the discussion in Israel, would take, diminish the, the notion of, of the weapons as a component of, of what you call the holiness of security, I think, that was a founding principle uh, for, uh, for Ben-Gurion, and bring Israel's strategy down to earth, so to speak, and then empower it to actually uh, deal in a more instrumental way with these problems. I think because we're talking about the weapons, which is primarily political weapons, it's symbolic, it's political, but it's not really military, except very extreme circumstances, which, which short of Israel itself being attacked, none of them is, is, is likely, and I don't think that Israel is, 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 is likely. I, th- I think the scenario which Israel is being attacked by nuclear weapons is, especially when Iran does not yet have the bomb, that's, that's not an immediate, uh, an immediate concern. I think that under opacity, Israel does not have a sense of itself, its own strength, its own hmm. confidence in the Middle East. I think that the strong Israel Israel that recognizes its own strength can go towards peace, mix territorial concessions, accept certain things. And I think the world would be much more willing to accept Israel that for the time being will keep its nuclear weapons, but Israel that makes compromise and make concession towards peace with the Arabs, a peace-seeking Israel, I think the world is much more ready and willing to give Israel pass on the nuclear issue, not just pass under the table, but pass on the table. And I think that it would allow Israel to be, in my language, more normal, uh, less paranoid, uh, less uh, with various kind of Jewish old concern that Israel or Zionism was supposed to heal and to repair. So the issue of the bomb in variety of broad aspects goes to the very depth of Israeli normalcy and abnormalcy to the very fundamental questions of, of Zionism, whether Jewish history is cyclical, that always there are enemies and Israel always looking like a paranoid guy on, on, on the people around him in its neighborhood or not. So it comes to a very basic issue about the way you look at yourself, the way you see yourself. And I would like to use the bomb as a way to, to bring more hmm. normalcy on, on the Israeli side. One one final uh, question, which is how would you like in the short term your book to uh, impact the policy discussion in Israel and the policy discussion here? 
is there a is there an intermediate yeah. uh, kind of step yeah. that you would like to yeah. see other than the long-term result? Yes. I am mature enough and old enough to realize that at the present time, given the burden of history, the burden of being customs and being having certain habits, political habits, emotional habits, I... You know, I'm old enough to realize that Israel is not going to shield off opacity overnight. That's not going to happen. So my voice will remain, in terms of policy, in terms of directions, probably a lonely voice for, for a long time. However, and in that respect, I feel that I already has contributed to some change. Small change, but some change. I would like to make the issue more normal to lower the taboo-like features around this issue, to make Israeli more comfortable to discuss this issue, to make the issue much more part of the conversation in Israel than it has been in the past. And I think that in that direction, I have helped to create a little change. I'm not the only one, but I think the issue is not as unique or as exceptional or as taboo-like as it was 20 years ago. So this is a small contribution. Avner, uh, uh, I want to thank you for being here. I want to show your book again to our audience, uh, and I recommend it highly because it's a, it's a very good read for somebody who uh, is not necessarily an expert in this. Uh, and it's an important a discussion in the context of what's going on in the Middle East today. Thank you very much for joining us. It has today. been a pleasure. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.